Chapter 12, Part 1 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 1, by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12, Part 1, Home and Country. The family and home life of Clara Barton occupy of necessity a smaller place in this narrative than they rightfully deserve. Reference has been made in the early pages of this work to Clara Barton's advent into a home which for several years had believed itself complete. It must not be inferred on that account that the little late arrival was other than heartily welcome. Nor must the fact that her more than normal shyness and introspection during her childhood made her a problem be understood as indicating any lack of sympathy between her and any member of her household. On the contrary, her childhood memories were happy ones and her affection for every member of the household was sincere and almost unbounded. Nor yet again must it be supposed that her long absences from home weaned her heart away from those who were entitled to her love. Love of family and pride of family and sincere affection for every member of the home group were manifest in all her correspondence she left her home and went out into the world while she was still a child in her own thought and in the thought of her family she became a teacher while she was still wearing the little waifish dresses of her childhood she had to do a large part of her thinking and planning apart from the companionship of those she loved best but she loved them deeply and sincerely the members of her family receive only incidental mention in this narrative and with her advent into wider fields of service they must drop increasingly into the background and out of view in order, however, that we may have in mind their incidental mention, let us here record the condition of her immediate family at the time of the outbreak of the Civil War. Her eldest sister, Dorothy, born October 2nd, 1804, became an invalid and died unmarried April 19th, 1846, aged 41. Her brother Stephen, born March 20th, 1806, married November 24th, 1833, Elizabeth Rich, and died in Washington March 10th, 1865, aged 59 years. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he was living in Hertford County, North Carolina, whither he had gone in 1854. He had established a large sawmill there, and gathered about it a group of industries which by 1861 had become the most important concern in the village. Indeed, the village itself had grown up about his enterprise, and took its name, Bartonville, from him. When the war broke out, he was past the age for military service. 
At the beginning of the struggle, however, he had no mind to leave the South. While he was a Union man, and everyone knew it, he had been long enough in the South to appreciate the position of the Southern people, and had no mind needlessly to wound their feelings. His mill, his store, his blacksmith shop, his lands, his grain, his cattle, had been accumulated by him through years of toil, and he desired to stay where he was and protect his property. He did not believe, no one believed, that the war was going to last so long. There was no service which, at the beginning, he could render to the northern cause. So he remained. As the war went on, his situation grew less and less tenable, and in time dangerous. He sent his helpers north, some twenty of them. They made their way amid perils and hardship, reached Washington, where Clara Barton rendered them assistance, and ultimately the most of them entered the Union Army. But earlier than this, in 1861, and at the beginning of 1862, his family was growing increasingly anxious about him, and very desirous, if possible, that he should get away. He was warned and threatened. At one time he suffered a night assault by a mob. Bruised and battered though he was, he fought them off single-handed and remained in the South. Her younger brother David, born August 15, 1808, married September 30, 1829, Julia Ann Maria Porter, lived to the age of 80, and died March 12, 1888. At the outbreak of the war, David and Julia Barton had four children, their twin daughters, Ada and Ida, born January 18, 1847, the one son, Stephen Emery, born December 24, 1848, and in 1861, a lad of twelve, and the daughter Mary, born December 11th, 1851. With her brother David, his wife Julia, and his four children, Clara was in continuous correspondence. His family lived in the old home, and she kept in constant touch with them. Her sister-in-law Julia was very dear to her, and perhaps the best correspondent in the family. Her sister Sarah, born March 20th, 1811, married April 17th, 1834, Vester Vassal, and died in May, 1874. At the outbreak of the war, both the children of this marriage were living. The younger son Irving died April 9th, 1865. The elder son, Bernard Barton Vassal, born October 10, 1835, married October 26, 1863, Francis Maria Childs, and died March 23, 1894. Mrs. Vassal is still living. With this family, Clara's relations were those of peculiar intimacy, 
Her sister and her sister's children were very dear to her. Irving was a young man of fine Christian character, not physically strong enough to bear arms, and was in Washington in the service of the government during the war. Bernard married Clara's dear friend and assistant at Bordentown. He was a soldier, and during the war his wife Fanny lived for a considerable time in Washington. Clara Barton's mother, Sarah, or Sally Stone, born November 13, 1783, died July 10, 1851, aged 68. Her death occurred while Clara was studying at Clinton, and the expressions of solitude in Clara's diary at the time of her perplexities over her love affairs were induced in part, though perhaps unconsciously, by her loneliness after her mother's death. Clara's relations to her father were always those of peculiar nearness and sympathy. In her childhood, he was more constantly her companion than her mother ever was. When Clara was away from home, nothing more surely gave her concern than news from her brother or sister that father, or from her nieces and nephews, that grandpa was not as well as usual. Her diaries and her letters are burdened with her solicitude for them. In the latter part of 1861, his health gave occasion for some concern, but he seemed to recover. She made a journey to Worcester and Oxford in December, but returned to Washington before Christmas, taking with her boxes and trunks of provisions for the soldiers which she wished to deliver, if possible, at Arlington so as to be closer to the place of actual need. Her nephew, Irving Vassal, was with her on the return journey. The letter which preserves the account of this expedition is interesting as recording her account of a Sunday spent with the army. What took her there was her determination to deliver her goods to the place of need before she returned to her home in Washington. She was still learning military manners and the ways of camp life, and was giving herself unsparingly to the collection of supplies. She was assisting in hospital work in Washington, and definitely planning to have a hospital there assigned to herself. As yet, apparently, she had no definite plan to go herself directly to the battlefield. November and the early part of December were mild. Day by day she thanked God for every ray of sunshine, and night by night she lifted up her heart in thanksgiving that the boys, who were sleeping on the bare ground with only single threads of white canvas above them, were not compelled to suffer from the rigors of cold. On December ninth. 1861, she wrote the following, which was a kind of prayer of thanksgiving for mild weather. December ninth, 1861. The streets are thronged with men bright with tinsel, 
and the clattering hoofs of galloping horses sound continually in our ears. The weather is bright and warm as May, for which blessing I feel hourly to thank the great giver of all good gifts, that upon this vast army lying like so many thousand herds of cattle on every side of our bright beleaguered city, with only the soil for which they peril life beneath, and the single threads of white canvas above, watching like so many faithful dogs, held by bonds stronger than death, yet patient and uncomplaining. A merciful God holds the warring, pitiless elements in his firm, benignant grasp, withholds the rigors of early winter, and showers down upon their heads the genial rays of untimely warmth, changing the rough winds of December to the balmy breezes of April. Well may we hold thanksgiving, and our army unite in prayer and songs of praise to God. Her diary at this period is irregular, and I have not yet discovered a definite record of her journey from Washington and back, except in her letter to the wife of an army surgeon, which she wrote on the day before Christmas, 1861. Washington, D.C., December 24th, 1861. My darling cousin, how naughtily I have neglected your cheering little letter, but it has been all my hands and none my heart which have done the naughty thing. I have wanted so to write you all the time, and intruders would come between us and would have all my time. It was not always people, oh no, work and care, and an o'ergrown correspondence intruded upon me, but I always solace myself with the thought that, if my friends will only have a little patience with me, it will all come right, and their turn will come at last, and after a time the best of them learn me, and then, in my easy, hurrying, slipshod way, we come to be correspondents for I. In the course of a year, I say a great deal of nonsense to my correspondents, but I cannot always say it when my head and heart are the fullest of it. But first let me hasten to tell you what cannot fail of being exceedingly gratifying to you, viz., that I am in a habit of receiving daily visits from your husband. But I was a long time in getting about it, however. I sent twice to his hotel, the great pandemonium wherein he is incarcerated, before Sunday, but could get no tidings all the time. I was fearful he was here, and I missing him, and then I was almost certain that he was not able to be here, but at length I could risk it no longer and wrote a hurried little note and dropped it in the office for him, and sure enough it brought him. I was so glad to see him, and so much better too. It is splendid. But then he had been trying to find me, 
and I, in the meantime, had, along with all Washington, removed. Just think of it. But I removed out of a burden of care to perfect ease, and yet can command just as much room as I desire in case I need, and if I have no need of it, am not troubled with it only that I have the trouble of furnishing, at which doctor may inform you I am making very slow progress. I have so many things in Massachusetts now that I want. My walls are perfectly bare, not a picture, and I have plenty to furnish them. It is vexatious that I didn't know to take them when I was there. I fear to allow others to pack them. I suspect that, after the daily letter of your husband, inimitable correspondent and conversationist that he is, there is nothing left for me to relate of our big city, grown up so strangely like a gourd all in a night, places which never before dreamed of being honored by an inhabitant save dogs, cats, and rats are converted into elegantly furnished rooms for rent, and people actually live in them with all the city airs of people really living in respectable houses, and I suspect many of them do not know that they are positively living in sheds. But we, who have become familiar with every old roof years agone, know perfectly well what shelters them. Well, the present aspect of our capital is a wide, fruitful field for description, and I will leave it for the doctor. He will clothe it in a far richer dress than I could do. Perhaps you wish to know somewhat about my journey with my big trunks. Well, it was perfectly quiet, nothing like an adventure to enliven until we reached Baltimore to which I had checked my baggage as the nearest point to Annapolis, for which place I could not get checks, but to which I had determined to go before proceeding to Washington. I delivered my checks to the expressman, took receipts, and gave every conductor on the train to understand that my baggage was to be taken through the city in the same train with myself for we disconnect and come through Baltimore in horse cars. But just imagine my vexation when, as our train commenced to move off, I saw my baggage just moving by slow teams up the street in the direction of our train. It had no checks, and I must not become long separated from it. The train was in motion, and I could not leave it. I had no idea what would be done with it, whether retained in Baltimore, sent to Annapolis Junction, or forwarded to Washington. I had to think fast, and you remember it was Saturday night. Relay House was the nearest station. I left the train there, Irving went on to Washington, and proceeded directly to the telegraph office and telegraphed back to Baltimore describing the baggage and directing it to come on the next train one hour later. They had just time to get it aboard, and on the arrival of the train 
I found it in the baggage car, took that train, and proceeded nine miles to the junction, stopped too late for Annapolis that night, chartered the parlor and sofa, every room in the house filled with officers, and as good luck would have it, a train, special, ran down from Annapolis the next day, about eleven, for a regiment of zouaves, and I claimed my seat and went to, and the first anyone knew I presented myself at the headquarters of the twenty-first. You will have to imagine the cordial, affable colonel springing from his seat with both hands extended, the extremely polite Lieutenant Colonel Maggie, always in full dress with a constantly worn sword, with eyes and hair so much blacker than night, going through a succession of bows and formalities which I, a simple homebred, unsophisticated Yankee, didn't know what upon earth to do with, completely confounded till the clear appreciative knowing twinkle of our cute major clark's eyes set things right again and almost the last our honest modest cousin fletcher coming up way round on the other side for his word and not one among them all to whom i could extend a more cordial greeting please tell grandma that he hasn't broken a limb his horse fell with him and hurt his shoulder, but it is nearly well now. I was just in time for a seat between the colonel and lieutenant colonel at dinner, and accompanying them to the chapel to listen to the opening discourse of their newly arrived chaplain, Reverend Mr. Ball, Unitarian. He addressed the men with great kindness of manner, beseeching them to come near to him with all their trials burdens and temptations and let him help to bear them he was strong to bear patient to hear and willing to do and his arm and his ear and his heart were theirs for all good purposes there was many a glistening eye among that thousand waiting men still as the night of death for a regiment of soldiers can be the stillest living thing i ever looked at the twenty-first are in the main good true men and i was glad that a man of gentle speech and kind and loving heart had come among them next morning brought some of our good worcester ladies from the twenty-fifth to our camp among whom was the daughter-in-law of your neighbor mr denny a beautiful coach and span of horses were found and a cosy but rather gay party of us started for the camp of the twenty-fifth and here we found your excellent pastor mr james the best specimen of a true soldier that i ever saw nothing too vast for his mind to grasp nothing too trivial if needful to interest him cheerful, brave, and tireless, watching like a faithful sentry the wants of every soldier, and apparently more than equal to every emergency. What a small army of such men were sufficient to overcome all our present difficulties. 
you should see his tent. It was a cold, raw day, more so than any which has followed it. But the moment I was inside, I found myself so warm, and my feet grew warm, as if I were standing over a register, and I could not see where the heat came from. But my curiosity was irrepressible, and I had to ask an explanation of the mystery. When Mr. James raised a little square iron lid, like the door of a stove, which I believe it was, almost hidden in the ground, in among the dried grass, and to my astonishment revealed a miniature volcano blazing beneath our very feet. The whole ground beneath his tent seemed to be on fire, with currents of air passing through which fed the flame and took away the smoke. There was, of course, no dampness in the tent, and I could see no reason why it should be less healthy or comfortable indeed, excepting small space, than any house. And such piles of letters and books and Nettie's picture over the table and the quiet little boy following close and looking up in his master's face like any pet all presented a scene which I wished his intelligent and appreciative wife, at least, could have looked in upon. Oh, yes, I must not forget to mention the conspicuous position which Grandma's mittens occupied upon the table. Mr. James put them on to show what a nice fit they were, and wondered what Grandma would say if she were to look in upon him in his tent. Clara Barton was still in Washington through January and apparently through February 1862. Not always was she able to include pleasant weather among the occasions of her Thanksgiving. Every now and again a pitiless storm beat down upon the soldiers, who were poorly provided with tents and blankets. Frequently she met among the soldiers in Washington some of her old pupils. She was never able to look upon armies as mere masses of troops. She had to remember that they were individual men, each capable of suffering pain in his own person, and each of them carrying with him to the front the anxious thought of loved ones at home. This was the burden of a letter which she wrote on January ninth, eighteen sixty two. Washington, D.C., January ninth, eighteen sixty two. Thursday morning. My darling sis Fanny. In spite of everything, I shall this moment commence this note to you, and I shall finish it as soon as I can, and when it is finished, I shall send it. In these days of proclamations, this is mine. I am truly thankful for the institution of ghosts, and that mine haunted you until you felt constrained to cry out for relief. Not that I would have invoked discomfort upon you, or welcomed it when it should come, but your letter was so welcome, how could I, in mortal weakness, be so unselfish as not to hail with joy any provoking cause. 
You perceive that my idea of ghosts is not limited to graveyards and tombs, or the tenants thereof. Indeed, so far from it, the most troublesome I have ever known were at times the inmates of living and moving bodies habiting among other people, coming out only occasionally like owls and bats to frighten the weak and discourage the weary. I am rejoiced to know that you are comfortable and happy, and that your school is not wearing you. You are perfectly right. Never let another school be a burden of care upon you. You will do all your duty without any such soul-vexing labors. I envy you and Miss Bliss and your long social intellectual evenings. Please play I am there sometimes. I will be so quiet and never disturb a bit, but dear me, I am in rougher scenes, if in scenes at all. My head is just this moment full to aching, bursting with all the thoughts and doings of our pet expedition. A half hour ago came to my room the last messenger from them, the last I shall have in all probability, until the enemy's galling shot shall have raked through the ranks of my dear boys and strewn them here and there, bleeding, crippled, and dying. Only think of it. The same fair faces that only a few years ago came every morning, newly washed, hair nicely combed, bright and cheerful, and took their places quietly and happily among my scholars. The same fair heads, perhaps now a few shades darker, that I have smoothed and padded in fond approval of some good deed or well-learned task, so soon to lie low in the southern sands, blood-matted and tangled, trampled under foot of man and horse, buried in a common trench, unwept, uncoffined, and unknown. For the last two weeks my very heart has been crushed by the sad thoughts and little touching scenes which have come in my way. It tires me most when one would get a few hours' leave from his regiment at Annapolis and come to me with some little sealed package and perhaps as warrant as a non-commissioned officer and ask me to keep it for him either until he returns for it or when i should read his name in the blacklist send it home and by the time his errand were well done his little hour would be up and with a hearty grasp of the hand an earnest deep-toned good-bye he stepped from my presence marching cheerfully bravely out to die I said to myself, as my soul sunk within me, and the struggling breath would choke and stop, until the welcome shower of tears came to my relief. Oh, the hours I have wept alone over scenes like these no mortal knows. To any other friend than you, I should not feel like speaking so freely of such things, but you— who know how foolishly tender my friendships are, and how I loved my boys, will pardon me, and not think me strange or egotistical. 
but I must forget myself and tell you what the messenger said. It was simply that they were all on board, that when he left, the harbor was full, literally crammed with boats and vessels, covered with men, shouting from every deck. At every breeze that lifted the drooping flag aloft, a shout went up that deafened and drowned every other sound, save the roar of the cannon, following instantly, drowning them in return. The Well, just as I knew it would be when I commenced twenty days ago to write you, someone interrupted me, and then came the returning hours of tedious labor, and a thrice-told quantity has held me fast until now. I have been a great deal more than busy for the past three weeks, owing to some new arrangements in the office, mostly by which I lead the record, and hurry up the others who lag. Our city has known very little change since I commenced my first sheet, although everybody but the wise people have looked intently for something new and desperately dreadful some forward movement or backward advance but nothing of the kind has happened doubtless much to our credit and comfort no private returns from the expedition yet but the commandant of the post at annapolis who just left me a moment ago says that the Baltic will leave there this p.m. to join them in their landing, wherever it may be. Colonel Allen's death was a most sad affair. His regiment was the first to embark at Annapolis, a splendid regiment twelve hundred strong. But a truce to wars, so here's my white flag, only I suppose you don't see it, do you? by this time you are reveling in the february number of the atlantic so am i i have just laid down a c after a hurried perusal not equal to love and skates though what a capital thing that is but the yankee idle caps all that has yet been done or said i cannot lay that down and keep it there it will come up again, the thoughts to my mind, and the pages to my hand. Old Uncle S., says he, I guess. God's price is high, says he. Who ever heard so much, so simply and so quaintly expressed? There are at least ten volumes of good sound orthodoxy embodied just there in that single stanza but port royal mustn't be eclipsed the glories of that had been radiating through my mind however since its first appearance in the tribune if that were the first it was the first i saw of it and i thought it so beautiful that i shouldn't be able to relish another poem for at least six weeks and here it is so soon bedimmed by a rival oh the fickleness of human nature and human loves a beautiful pair they are surmounted by the godlike battle hymn tossing over all what did our poets do for subjects before the war it's a godsend to them i am certain 
and they equally so to us. Sometimes I think them the only bright spot in the whole drama. Well, here I am at war again. I knew it would be so when I signed that treaty on the previous page. I'm as bad as England. The fight is in me, and I will find a pretext. I have not seen our North Oxford regulars for some time, owing to the fact that a sea of mud has lain between me and them for the last three weeks, utterly impassable. A few weeks ago, Cousin Leander called me to see a member of his mess who was just attacked with pleuritic fever. I went and found him in hospital. He was cheerful, a fine young man, and thought he should be out soon. Work and storm kept me from him three days, and the fourth we bought him a grave and the congressional burying ground. Poor fellow. And there he lies, all alone. A soldier's grave, a sapling at the head, a rough slab at the foot, nine shots between, and all is over. He waits God's bugle to summon him to a re-enlistment in the Legion of Angels. Well, it's no use. I've broken the peace again, and I can't keep it. I hope you live in a more peaceful community than I do, and are consequently more manageable and less belligerent. Clara The foregoing letter dealt almost wholly with national affairs. Family matters were giving her little concern during the twenty days in which this unfinished missive lay on her desk. But scarcely had she mailed it when she received this letter concerning her father. North Oxford, Mass. January thirteenth, 1862. My dear Clara, I sat up with Grandpa last night and he requested me to write to you and tell you how he was. Someone has to sit up with him to keep his fire regulated. He takes no medicine and says he shall take no more. He is quite low-spirited at times, and last night very much so. Complains of pains in his back and bowels said he should not stop long with us and should like to see you once more before he died he spoke in high terms of julie and of the excellent care she had taken of him but said after all there was no one like you i think he fails slowly and is gradually wearing out a week ago he was quite low so feeble that he was unable to raise himself in bed now he is more comfortable and walks out into the sitting-room most every day. He cannot be prevailed upon to go to bed, but sits in his great chair and sleeps on the lounge. When he was the sickest, I notified Dr. Darling of his situation, and he called. Grandpa told him his medicine did not help or hurt him doctor left him some drops, but said he had no confidence in his medicine, and he did not think it would help him. His appetite is tolerably good for all kinds of food, and what he wants he will have. 
I hardly know what to write about him. I do not wish to cause unnecessary alarm, and at the same time I want you to fully understand his case. As I said before, he gets low-spirited and disconsolate, but I think he may stand by us some months longer, and yet he may be taken away at any moment. Of course, every new attack leaves him feebler and more childish. He wants to see you again, and seems quite anxious about it, but whether about anything in particular, he did not say. Sam Barton End of Chapter 12, Part 1